me ask you a question. This morning, right now where you sit, this morning, do you feel priceless or worthless? Do you feel priceless or worthless? Well, you would say, well, pastor, it just... <laughs> It just all depends on who you talk to about me as to whether I'm priceless or worthless. Breaking free from the lies of rejection. This morning, one more, one more page will turn. Breaking free of the lies of rejection. Worthless or priceless. Now our point of departure this morning is going to be one, one more excerpt, one more segment in the life of David, the king of Israel. It's a segment that emerges before he was proclaimed the king, before Saul, whom he would follow, was actually removed from the throne. And at the heart of this is, is relationships, and specifically the relationship between a husband and wife. Michael, that was her Hebrew name. We get the word Michelle from that today. Michael was David's first wife. And it was a love story in the beginning. But it sadly morphed into something else. She warmly and excitedly accepted him in the beginning. But there came a point in time where she rejected him. And not just, not just the externals of David, but who he was down to the bone, she rejected him. How did David respond to that? Now, this, this isn't going to just be a he said, she said, you know, the, the, the wife is, is, is the bad one and the husband is the good one. You, you can interchange these roles very, very easily, and we ought to. It's just that in the context of the story, it was Michael, the wife, who rejected. Now, they stayed married. There was no divorce. But the scripture recalls, and we'll get to it, but it says she had no child to the day of her death. In other words, intimacy just stopped. It just got shut down. 
if, 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 you, if you were to ask David, in the eyes of Michael, David, are you priceless? Are you worthless? His answer would have to be, in the eyes of Michael, I'm worthless. But what Michael didn't know, and it's what we're going to dig into this morning, what, what Michael didn't know is that during years of David's life, when they were separated because of Saul, her daddy's persecution of her husband, David, and he had to run for his life, and no telling how many years they were not together. But during that time, there came to be working in David's life a bigger voice, a bigger voice, a louder voice than the voice of people, a louder voice than even the voice of his wife to his soul. And if you were asked David to ask David the question, David, to your shepherd, to your father, are you worthless or are you priceless? He would, could very likely say, well, you, 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 really, you really ought to read what I, what I wrote in Psalm number 56 where during that time I was being chased by Saul I came to this conclusion. This I know that God is for me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in Him. In His Word, I trust. What can man do to me? See, we can think we know someone. And we really don't. What matters to you or to me may not really matter to them. And I better be careful what I insist upon if what matters to me doesn't really matter to them. Another thing to keep in mind is, as we look into this, is that trouble, trouble does something to people. Trouble, tight places, the furnace, the wilderness, long nights, seasons of little or lack or nothing, trouble does something to people. One of the things that it does, as we've talked about, it, it clarifies reality. Trouble will help you understand who you can really count on and who you really can't. Trouble will do that. Trouble has a way of burning away what's shallow. Trouble has a way of, of doing away with the plastic. Trouble has a way of solidifying loyalty. When, when trouble shows you who you can't 
or what you can't count on, trouble will also show you who you can count on. Trouble has a way of solidifying loyalty in the soul. Can you say amen to that? A loyalty. So when someone attacks someone or something that you have found to be a source of strength, a source of steadiness in the middle of the storm, when someone comes against something or someone that you have found to be a source of strength, your, your loyalty is challenged true of David. Another thing to watch for is that there is a line of what's most valuable that you dare not cross because it may be more valuable than you are. In a relationship, there is often a line of what's most valuable, what's most cherished by a person. And you dare not insult it, you dare not cross it, you dare not mock it, because what happens is in a relationship, you may find out that it, that, is more valuable to that person than you are. Micah found that out. She also found out that if you reject him, you reject a person at the place of what is important to them or most valuable to them, it can end up making them reject you. You say, well, pastor, please get to something happy here. Please get to something happy. But that needs to be set in place so that as we read the actual account, you'll have some point of an overall reference. Go, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to back you up a little bit more, back to 16, 1 Samuel 16, and let's just remember this one again. Then Samuel, the old prophet, took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. You remember, Samuel was sent by the Lord to the house of Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. Seven of them came by. The Lord didn't prompt Samuel that any of those were the one that he had chosen. But when David, who had been left out of the gathering, who was out tending the sheep, the youngest of the litter, was brought in, the Lord said to Samuel, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and then here's this phrase. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, anointed to be king, but that was going to be years, a decade or so before it would actually, it actually put a crown on his head. But in between the time that Samuel designated him as such and the time that he ascended the throne, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now the next chapter is Goliath. We talked about that. 
David needed the anointing of the Lord, the power of the Lord to be upon him mightily to help him as he wound up to throw that rock out of that sling in order for the velocity to be right, the trajectory to be right, for him to hit that target on Goliath's head so that he would come down and they could take his life and, 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 and there'd be a great victory for the armies of Israel against the Philistines. He was going to need that. Why? Folks, this is so important. It's because God knew that in David's own strength, he didn't have what it would take. He, he, he was weak in experience. He was weak in strength. He just didn't have what it was going to take. And so the Lord, knowing what was before David, knowing what the assignments would be for him, knowing that this season of preparation would be beyond his human strength, not just taking out Goliath, but those years of being hunted like an animal and having to live from one drink of water to the next drink of water and just praying he'd make it through the night without Saul's henchmen coming to kill him. The Lord knew that if David was going to make it through that wilderness, if David was going to make it through those midnights, if David was going to be able to keep going and not back off and chicken out, the Lord was going to have to be mighty within him. It wasn't about how smart David was. It wasn't about how good looking he was. It wasn't about how charismatic he was. Here's what it was. It was the choice of God upon his life and it was the spirit of God working inside him. And in that sense, hallelujah, there's not a lot of difference between David and you and me. God has picked us out for this season in time. God has picked us out to be in the families we're in. He's picked us out to have the jobs we have. He's picked us out to be in the culture we're in. We're chosen of him. But his heart is for you and me every day of our lives to know that we get up. When we get up, we're not supposed to just be saying, Lord, help me out a little bit here. Would you just come alongside and just kind of help me up when I get weak? The idea is, Lord, I can't do this today. I can't, I can't think right. I can't hold steady. I can't forgive people. I can't know what's, what I'm supposed to believe you for unless you fill me with your spirit. And that's what I ask to be. I ask to be a Christian today. By the way, Christ inside me. What's the name Christ? What does it mean? The anointed one, the one empowered with strength from heaven to accomplish the purpose that God gave Jesus to accomplish. Christian, Christ on the inside, the anointed one alive inside me. Don't, don't, don't be reading this about David and what he went through and think, well, that was good for David. No, this story is in your Bible for your instruction, for my encouragement, for us to say, God, what you did to him and did for him before Pentecost, bless God. I'm, by, I'm past Pentecost. The Calvary is finished. The heavens open and you poured out your spirit. I need to be filled all over again today. I don't want to leave my house in my own strength. I don't want to face the first red light in my own strength. I don't want to engage in the first conversation in my own strength. Fill me, Lord. Fill me, Lord. I ask you to come mightily upon me today as you came upon David in his day. Amen. Amen. In our old way, 
The old man, the old woman, we gave in to drugs. We gave in to chasing this, that, and the other. We gave in to all manner of lies that were supposed to satisfy us. That was the old person. But in Jesus Christ, the old things have passed away. And new things have come. Alive in Christ. Alive in Christ. I've come to give you an abundant life. An abundant life. Hold on to that family of God. Read whatever you read in the Old Testament in the light of what you know to be true from the New Testament. That's the eyes that we look back through. All right, so let me calm back down here a minute. If you guys just wouldn't respond, I wouldn't get, I wouldn't get off into all that stuff. But thank you. you know. Okay, so Goliath. And David was elevated into the upper levels of Saul's entourage, his, his court. Young man, but trusted to be brave to be faithful, to be loyal to his sovereign who was, who was Saul. Look at chapter 18, verse 14. And I really want you to see this. Those of you who think, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to be a preacher. I, I may never have a reverend in front of my name. I, I, I may never write a Christian book. I, I may never sing a, sing a Christian song. Well, good, good, good. We've got too many of those people anyway. <laughs> look, look at this. And David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. Now look, Saul was not assigning David to study and to write the book of Genesis. He, he, Moses would do that, would have already. David's assignments were not spiritual assignments. Can somebody say amen? But the, the, here's what I'm saying. The problem is sometimes we get to thinking that the only thing that the Lord is interested in is what I do with my nose and my Bible or what I do when I'm talking to just church people or I hadn't really served God unless I spent 40 hours in the church house this week. Wrong. Wrong. This is halftime. This is, this is not the game. When the church gathers, this is not the game. Out yonder. Now look, and this is so, I just can't hardly stand it. I want to get up on a pew and just holler this and pop my handkerchief. Look at what it says. David was prospering in all his ways. Not just his Sabbath ways, but his everyday administrative days. His military assignments. His peacemaking assignments with folks fussing at each other out there in the kingdom. Whatever he got assigned to do, the Lord prospered him in the doing of it. Every businessman, every businesswoman in this room, in the sound of my voice, everybody who has a world outside of the church need to take heart in this. The Lord's interested in what you you don't lock him up. He's not got his face with his nose pressed against the glass as you walk out to go west into San Antonio. Where you are, he is. The steps of a good man, the steps of a good woman are ordered by the Lord. And look, he delights in his way. And if he delights in it, he desires to bless it. 
So we have every right when we go to work, when we're engaged in things that are not necessarily church kind of stuff, to be able to say, Lord, I read where you prospered David out in the business community, out in the military community, out in the culture of his day, trying to live in a way that would honor his superior. Lord, I'm a, I just want to ask, I don't deserve it, but I don't deserve any of your kindness. I'm appealing to your mercy today, Lord. I, I'm going to ask you to prosper me today. I'm going to ask you to bless the works of my hands. I'm going to ask you to give me the ability to figure some stuff out that nobody's been able to figure out. I'm asking you to give me the niche, the notch, the, the way to connect the dots in some of this administrative thing. You say, you mean I could bring the Lord in to my work? I could bring the Lord into my school, into my assignments, into the relationships with people? Absolutely. He's not just the God for church building. I've taken too long on that, but somebody, if you don't hear anything else, they're screaming, hollering, sweating, spitting preachers saying today. I want you to hear this. David was prospering in all his ways. Why? For the Lord was with him. With him. Where David went, the Lord was. Where you go, the Lord is. And don't just treat that as an academic concept. Treat that as a reality. Lord, you're here. And did you hear what they just said? Did you see that email? Can you believe what's being dumped on my plate? I've all this other stuff I've got going. Instead of waiting five days to get back to church, right there on the spot as a priest able to speak directly into heaven in the name of Jesus. He's the high priest. You're a priest. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Bring him into everything. Lord, shine your light. It's getting kind of dark in here. Shine your light. All right. Believe you with that. Believe you. I dare, I dare you. I can't, I, can't, I can't quit. I can't get off of this. I just dare you. Invite the Lord into the days of your business life. Invite the Lord into phone conversation. You can't be saying, I just give you this minute, I'm listening to the Lord. You can't say that but you can in your own communication with him. Lord, I need you. And Lord, I'm asking you, give me what I don't have today, Lord, please. Prosper me as you prospered David. Okay. When Saul saw, verse 15, when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him dreaded David. Saul dreaded David because he was a threat. But all Israel and Judah loved David. And he went out and came in before them. And then Saul decided, well, I need to tighten this alliance, but I want to tighten it in such a way that I can manipulate David. So he offered to David his older daughter, Mirab, as a wife. In those days, the fathers of the daughters, it was just the way they did it. They could give their daughter in marriage, so be it, so let it be written, so let it be done. That was it. If love came later, fine, but if it didn't, you know, I, I, I don't want to get too far into deep weeds, but there have been a few times that there have been some dads that have wished that there could be a recurrence, a regathering of some of this old procedure. 
because of a desire to think I need to mess up that relationship. That's not going where that needs to go. Those days are gone, gentlemen. And they're gone gone forever. But at least in this time, Saul, the daddy, had the prerogative of giving a daughter in marriage. David didn't feel that he was worthy of it. Maybe he didn't, maybe he just didn't like Mira. Maybe he'd already seen Michael, you know. And he opted away from number one, but was interested in option number two. Verse 20. Now Michael or Michelle, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul, she must have said that to some friends. When they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him, and Saul thought, well, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So he contrived this this, um, plan that the dowry for David to pay in order to wed Michael was going to be the evidence that he had killed 100 Philistine warriors. Merib was going to be given to him just out of the goodness of Saul's heart, so to speak. David backed away from this. But, but there was something about this challenge that she's, she's worth 100 lives. He gathered his men together, and they went out, and instead of 100 Philistines, they killed 200 Philistines, brought the evidence back. And Saul gave Michael to him in marriage. Verse 28, just after the statement, so Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, daughter loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Saul was David's enemy continually. Though he was still in the court, though he was still under assignment of the king. But the hatred increased. The fire cooked to the point that the plot to kill David grew pronounced in Saul's mind. Verse 11, chapter 19, verse 11. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house, his and Michael's house, to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, told David, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window and he went out and fled and escaped. We have no further indication from that time until 2 Samuel chapter 3. If you go ahead and turn there over several pages. Until 2 Samuel chapter 3 and about verse 12, that David ever saw Michael again during those intervening years. They were young, a first marriage for both of them. But Saul so hated the husband that the daughter 
in loyalty to her husband at that point in time made it possible for David to escape, only to met, be met with the ire of her daddy, the king, saying, why have you been disloyal to me? Don't you know that this David is going to take the kingdom away from us and you'll be left with nothing? And he came after her as he did Jonathan, her brother. But all these years passed and David's been hunted Finally, the news came that on the mountains of Gilboa, Saul was killed by the Philistines or by the enemies of the Lord's people, and Jonathan as well. When the word came to David that Saul was dead, instead of celebrating, he grieved. But it wouldn't be long after that that, that Judah in the south came to David and said, you had been anointed by Samuel to be king over all of Israel. We want you to be our king. Saul, the house of Saul, Saul still had some sons still alive, Ishbosheth being one of them. And, and they were still trying to make what was left of Saul's kingdom work to the north. And the scripture would say after Saul's death that the house of David grew stronger and the house of Saul grew increasingly weaker. And during that time, David is no longer now under penalty of death by Saul. Saul is dead. But the reconciliation, the restoration of what David had lost had not yet been fulfilled. If you find 2 Samuel chapter 3, you'll find that there's a conversation between Abner, who is one of Saul's generals, and David. Verse 12, 2 Samuel 3.12, then Abner sent messengers to David in his place saying, whose is the land? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. He could in covenant with David, if he was promised safe passage, so to speak, if he was promised to be taken care of, not, not uh, killed, that he would work to bring the rest of Israel over to David. David said, verse 13, I want you to watch this carefully. David said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you. Namely, you shall not see my face until you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, still attempting to rule in Saul's place, saying, Give me my wife Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go return. So he returned. What in the world has happened? 
when David fled for his life, Saul exercised what he believed was his right as a king and a father to consider David as good as dead in the life of his daughter who was married to David. And he then, as he had given her to David, gave her as a wife to another man. So for all of these years, where David is by himself, where David is trying to just survive, and the rejection of Saul expressed in a multitude of ways, Micah has never left home, other than she was married to David, now she's married to this man, taken care of, needs met, broken heart probably, because she loved David, the scripture said. But now her world has been turned upside down. She has her daddy hating her first husband, and she's married to a man that there's no indication that there was ever love involved. She just was his. David never forgot her, never had gotten over her. Out of all the things he could have said to Saul's general to bring to him, the one thing he picked out out of every possibility was, I want Michael back. So she came. I want you to go with me now, leave 2 Samuel 3, and go with me to 2 Samuel 6. Now it was told the king, this is verse 12, now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. Kind of what's that all about? This was before Solomon's temple. This was in between the tabernacle in the wilderness and Solomon's temple. The, the key centerpiece of all that was the tabernacle and all that would be the temple was this article of furniture, if you will, called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is important. The lid, it was a box. The lid of the box was solid gold. Affixed to the top of the box were these two angelic creatures called cherubim. They had, they had wings. And they were affixed to the top. That's called the mercy seat, the lid to the rest of the Ark of the Covenant. And they faced each other. These images faced each other. And their, and their wings would sweep out in front of them facing each other, but the wings would not touch. There was a gap between the wings of the cherubim. The solid gold lid with the cherubim affixed to the top was the cover to a box that contained the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff or rod that budded, and some manna from the wilderness wanderer. 
all places and indicators of the, the good, goodness of God, and, and the Lord wanted that to be remembered, so they were put in the Ark of the Covenant. But it would be there at the mercy seat once a year that the high priest would come with a sacrifice representing the sins of the people, and he would pour out the blood of that sacrifice on the mercy seat. for the sense of the Lord's forgiveness to be released. Way back when the Ark of the Covenant was first fashioned and the mercy seat was designed and the Lord gave to Moses the specifics, the diagram, the design, here is what the Lord said. Moses, I will meet with you between the wings of the cherubim. It was reported, it was testified of, that when the high priest would go in, even in Solomon's majestic, impressive temple, solid gold room, the Holy of Holies, and inside that room with no windows, with no lamps, with no other light, between the wings of the cherubim, there was the evidence, the Shekinah, glory of God, the glow of the Lord's presence, spoken of as the Shekinah glory of the Lord. The only way the high priest could find his way in to do what he was to do on the Day of Atonement was not with a lamp that he carried not with candles that would have been lit around the room, not with the light of something coming through the open roof. He only saw on the basis of the light given off by the manifest presence of God himself. On this earth, the one spot where the creator God said, you will find me, I will be visible there. I will meet you, Moses, between the wings of the cherubim. You fast forward to this occasion. The ark has been stored at the house of Obed-Edom because they didn't have a permanent place for it to be. It had been, it had been kidnapped, hijacked by the Philistines for a while. They kept it for a while and they broke, they broke out with balls and all kinds of painful stuff and they said, get this thing out of here. And so they took it back to Israel. And it was kept for over 100 years in another house. And then it was, it was moved eventually as they were trying to bring it from the location where it had been for so long into Jerusalem. They, they didn't follow the prescription and of how it was supposed to be done, not on a cart but carried by priests. And, and the cart caused it to blow over. And one of the priests reached out to steady the ark. And, and he, he, was struck, he was struck dead by the by the holiness in that place. And it, it shook David and he didn't know what to do and went back and sought the Lord. And the Lord was saying, there's a way, there's a prescribed way for you to do this. So they followed the prescription. All of that is a background. It was told King David saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. The ark of God being the place where the manifest presence of God would be seen. And David 
went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. He wanted there to be, he wanted to be near the presence of the Lord, as close as he could get to the presence of the Lord. Let me show you something in Psalm 27 real quick. Hold, hold your place there. Find Psalm 27. You're going to remember this. The Lord is my light, verse 1, and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Verse 4. Psalm 27 was more than likely written when David was on the run. David was trying to flee for his life. One thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. In other words, I'm not there, but that's where I want to be to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. I will offer in his tent. I will, I will. He's not able to do it yet. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Micah had no idea the depth of what had been working in David's heart in those years when they weren't together. She, she, didn't, she didn't know that the midnights of his life had intensified his loyalty to his shepherd, to his father. She didn't realize the depth of what it meant to David to be convinced that when I don't have anybody who cares for my soul, when I don't have anybody who would reach out a kind hand toward me, the Lord has taken care of me. The Lord has not failed me. Folks, listen, we don't understand how much he has to offer until he is all we need and we have no place else to turn. And David found that to be true. So continue on with this with this story. So it was that, this verse 13, that when the, cup, when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, just a loincloth, okay? Nothing but that. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. The Hebrew here describing what David was doing is not, is not the language, is not the verbs that you would use to describe a court waltz, okay? He was flailing his arms. He was jumping up and down twirling himself, shouting out loud. He didn't have his crown on because the crown wouldn't have stayed on his head. He didn't have the royal robes on because the robes would have gotten in his way. Now you say, that just seems like a strange thing for a king to be doing. But the scripture says that David the king, David the head of state, David the politician, if you will, David the commanding general, David was a man after God's own heart. 
Not just in the sense of like God's heart, but on the trail of, in pursuit of, moving toward all the time after God's own heart. Let me read that again. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, decorum, restraint, out the window. He was exploding, mm. exploding verbally, physically, publicly with his unfettered passion for the God who had come to be his whole life. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting, sound of the trumpet. Then it happened. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed all the people to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people, over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will be more lightly esteemed than this. In other words, sweetheart, you ain't seen nothing yet. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humbled in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, 
had no child to the day of her death. Worthless or priceless? Worthless to David's wife. Priceless to his shepherd, to his father. So you can think you know someone and really don't. What matters to you may not matter to them. So be careful what you insist upon. Trouble does something to people. Clarifies reality, who or what you can trust. It, it, it burns away the shallow, the plastic, the dross. But trouble solidifies loyalty. And there is a line of what's most important in a person that you dare not insult or mock or cross because it may be found to be more valuable, more precious than you in that person's life. I want to encourage you that if God has blessed you in your marriage relationship or in a friendship, a close friendship, a relationship, with somebody who will cut you slack to run hard after God, if, even if some of what you have chosen to do some of the ways it's been authentically expressed by you may in some ways be a little bit embarrassment to the one who's in Because Michael was just embarrassed. Well, my daddy never threw his crown on the ground and went dancing half naked through the people. My daddy, my daddy. She's always referred to, other than the one or two times when it's David, she's David's wife, it's, it's Michael the daughter of Saul. But somehow she was consumed with this thing that she saw it correctly. That David was off and she was right. Now again, you can change the gender here, okay? But when God blesses you with somebody who loves you, and set you free, and their understanding about you, that there's a part of your life that God has confirmed that's just between you and him. Nobody else has to be included. And they're not threatened by that. They're not asking you to explain that. Because somehow God's giving them the ability to see life through your eyes instead of everything having to be how they see it, how they want it. The very act that was 
priceless to the Father was worthless to Micah. So who has the bigger mouth? Who has the greater impact? Again, trouble does something to people. We're going to end with this, but I want you to find Psalm 34. Another one of the Psalms that was written while David was running from Saul. The one first one that we alluded to was Psalm 56. That was when the Philistines seized David in Gath. Psalm 34 was when he played like he was mad before Abimelech. He drove him away and he departed. Abimelech, the, the enemy king, said, I got enough crazy people in my, in my court. What are you bringing this fellow in here for? And David was acting as if he was crazy in order to escape. <laughs> but look at what he writes. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. Proud people aren't going, they're not going to listen to my boasting in the Lord. But humble people will hear it when I brag on the Lord. Proud people are still thinking they can do it. They're self-made people. Humble people understand that I couldn't draw a breath unless God gave me the air to breathe and the lungs to do it. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Can you see this going off? And this was written before David was dancing before the Lord in the streets of Jerusalem. This had been cooking, incubating for we don't know how many years. He had written it then. It was strong and real in his heart. And when he finally has the opportunity, Saul is off his back. He has the freedom to do what's really in his heart to do. He's going for it. And he couldn't restrain himself. You couldn't calm down. You, know, you just need to be more reverent. You just, you just, you just, you just don't. Need, you don't know how that looks. You don't know how that sounds. You know, you don't know what that makes people feel like. Can you imagine that? The head of state let's just put one of our esteemed leaders in that position. So fired up, so thrilled, so whatever. Just, just, just dancing without a care in the world, except their focus is upon the Lord. I sought the Lord, and He answered me delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried. Michael, don't you understand this? This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who, when I didn't have a security team, when I didn't have an electric fence, when I didn't have drones flying over to see where Saul's men were, it was the angel of the Lord who camped beside my bed, who took care of me. The angel of the Lord camps around those who fear him and rescues them. You see how little Michael's world was? Little old bitty safe 
predictable world. And David was living in the wildness, the unpredictability of a man being hunted by someone in much greater authority trying to destroy him. But he, and is saying, it was the angel of the Lord camped around me and rescued me. And then he says in verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, where are you, David? Well, I'm not sure my street address. I don't know my GPS. I'm somewhere out here in the middle. But I'm going to tell you, you taste the Lord wherever you are, and he's good. And how blessed is the man who runs and hides in him. Trouble does something to people. Trouble, instead of shrinking your world, trouble exponentially expands your world. Because you become convinced that even when maybe your worst nightmare happened, it was not averted, it came upon you. But even in that place, you found that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. You found that even there you could taste of the Lord's heart, and it's a good heart. And he has no plans to abandon you. He has no plans to leave you. David was saying as he's dancing, all those things I declared in faith, all those things have happened. I'm rescued. I'm delivered. The kingdom has become mine. I will celebrate before the Lord. I can't help it. I will celebrate before the Lord. Verse 17, still Psalm 34. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. How did David know that was true? Was he just trying to come up with trite little sayings, cute little things that ought to be consistent with the, the academic concept of God? He knew it was true because he had had a broken heart. He knew it was true because he had been crushed in spirit. And the Lord came near to him. He felt the Lord's presence. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many of them. There are many of them. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. There's a difference legally between the word to be accused and the word to be condemned. He uses the word, none of them will be condemned. That means the sentence is passed. Verdict rendered, sentence is passed. Condemned, sentence is passed. He didn't say that you won't be, it does not, he does not say here that you won't be accused. You get accused. But the passing of the sentence, the condemnation, the Lord promises to keep under his care. Worthless or priceless. It depends on whose voice 
you're listening to. The prayer is, and our confidence is, that when we face seasons of rejection, that the Lord will end that moment or the Lord will pick up something from a previous moment or season to remind us that the sound of rejection when it paints our world in broad strokes, you're nothing but a loser. You'll never rise above this. You were never destined for anything great or good, that we will have enough of the sense of the Spirit of the Lord working inside us, that we'll know the source of those lies and we'll recognize that's what the enemy wants to do, to steal and to kill and to destroy. He wants to steal your dreams. He wants to destroy your vision. He wants to take away that which is a healthy and right sense of self-esteem, self-esteem as it is registered in the heart of God for you. May we live there, church. And when the, when, when, the, when the stench of rejection blows through the window, comes into the room, to be reminded what David received early on and what is ours to lay claim to today, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. From the top of my head to the soles of my feet, Clothe me with power from on high so that I can hear your voice and know the difference between the truth and a lie and go hard after you, God. Fill me. Set me on fire with your wonderful spirit. You say, well, I, I, that's fine, but I'm not sure that that's really something that the average Christian ought to, ought to be thinking about, maybe for a few special people. I'll give you this to chew on. There was only one characteristic that John the Baptist gave to describe Jesus to ones who were wanting to know, are you the Messiah? Is Jesus the Messiah? Here's all John the Baptist said. Oh, I baptize you with water. But the one who is coming, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelace because he, when he comes, he will baptize you. He will drench you. He will saturate you with his spirit and with fire. It's never intended to be just an academic pursuit of knowing God. We have the Bible. Thank the Lord for the Bible. But the Spirit was given so that we could experience His actual presence inside our chest, operating in our minds, flowing through our hands. Hallelujah. So when you see David dancing before the Lord and celebrating before the Lord, what was that? The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Goliath, Saul hunting him. Here comes the ark. The ark's entrance into the city of David was worthy of that kind of humiliation 
on the part of the head of state, <laughs> recognizing I'm nothing. He's everything. You honor him. You don't look at me. You honor him. Amen. All right, we'll leave it there. Would you stand with me, please? So, so when, when do I need to, when can I pray for the Spirit to fill me? When, when can I expect that the Lord would want to empower me? Everywhere you are, everywhere you go, anybody you're with, He wants to fill you. He wants to show you that he's there. He wants to cause you to prosper in the things that honor him. That's not about six figures in a CD somewhere. He can do that, but that, that's, that's not nearly as big a deal as if in a place of fear, in the setting of a group of folks that scare you to death, but you left the house praying, Lord, you know that meeting's coming. I ask you to give me something I don't have. I ask you to stoke up my soul. I ask you to give me the ability to believe you and rest in you in this meeting. And for you to get there, and there's peace. And you don't have to answer every question, but when you do speak, you speak with a sense of authority, and you know it. And you walk out of that room going, great, Scott, what in the world was that? And you'll know. It was the living Jesus. It was the resurrected Christ off the cross, out of Mary's lap, alive and in your heart, causing you to prosper wherever you go. Lord, would you take this where it needs to get? Take the, don't let us forget it. Don't let us blow it off. Don't let us move on in life like we've always been doing maybe and not counting on your power and your strength. We need you, Lord. Clothe us with power from on high that we may be able to represent you and testify of you and the world you've placed us. In Jesus' name, amen.